0: This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday
1: Injustice.
0: Today on Everyday Injustice, we have another progressive DA candidate, Janos Marton, who's running for DA in Manhattan, New York. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Great to be here.
0: So tell us a bit about your background and why you decided to run for DA.
1: Sure. Well, I'm a born and raised New Yorker. I grew up in Manhattan's Upper West Side. And growing up in New York in the 1990s, when Mayor Rudy Giuliani was uh, in charge here, uh, the police really had a free reign to do whatever they needed to do to bring down crime. And that included uh, having pretty abusive practices towards young people of color like myself. And so for me, criminal justice has been an issue that's been a part of my life well before I was sort of politically cognizant and well before I was a lawyer myself. Um, but I knew from my experiences growing up that I wanted to do something to fix the system of injustices that affected me and the people around me. Uh, and so I went to college and became an organizer and activist. I worked on campaigns and issues around the country. Uh, I came home to Fordham Law School uh, to become a civil rights attorney, and I did get to practice um for a little while before my career took an interesting turn that brought me much more into the politics of the criminal justice system as well. Um, I worked on uh, prosecuting political corruption at an organization called the Moreland Commission in New York. I served as counsel to uh, the police oversight board that we have in New York City. Uh, and then I led the campaign to close Rikers Island, uh, which is this notorious jail, a uh, pretrial detention facility uh, outside, just outside of New York City on the water. Uh, and over the course of two years, I, uh, we worked as a coalition uh, to uh, get the mayor and the city council and the governor to agree that Rikers Island should close and that New York City should significantly decarcerate. Uh, and in the course of doing that, really became acquainted with the discretion and power that district attorneys have in our system. And as and so I've continued my work at Just Leadership USA, which is where that campaign emanated from, and at the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, subsequently, um, I've made sure that our work in legislation, litigation and elections um, pressures district attorneys to do better and to get better district attorneys into office. And uh, that includes elections all over the country, including in our backyard, which is in Queens, where we almost elected a really bold, progressive district attorney candidate last year. And so all of that was percolating when I decided um, late last summer that it was time for me to join the race for Manhattan DA. Uh, We have very problematic uh, three term incumbents, Cy Vance Jr. And uh, it's long overdue that um, Manhattan had the kind of progressive prosecutor representing them that places like San Francisco and so many other cities have now.
0: So what does your campaign look like right now?
1: So this election will be in spring of 2021, which sounds far off, if not for a uh, slightly distracting presidential election happening between now and then. So it really behooves us to get our campaign up and running now. We've been doing really exciting work in a couple different areas. Number one, um, we're going to be organizing a campaign that, at least in New York City, has has never really been seen um, uh, for a district attorney race, because we're going to be going into communities most impacted by mass incarceration, which, for your listeners who know New York, is uh, East Harlem, Lower East Side, Washington Heights, and working with communities there to get them involved in the campaign, see if there's another way possible. See that they have an active role in transforming the criminal justice system. On the policy side, we've been putting out extremely bold policy proposals, and and we really get serious and detailed about it. You know, criminal justice reform it has very much become a buzzword uh, in political circles these days. It's hard to find anybody who doesn't say they're for quote criminal justice reform, and so we're not letting this district attorney race. Um, fall to that. We're going to make sure that any candidate who steps into this race has to articulate what they mean by that and how exactly they're going to reduce the number of people in jail and prison uh, and what alternatives they're going to come up with. And so we put out a policy on pretrial detention, on sentencing reform, and most recently on drug policy, uh, where we're going to really revisit how our office would approach the war on drugs, putting public health first over the criminalization of communities. Uh, and then finally, you know we're we're just building up a team. Um I've been able to, privileged to work with many great people involved in the New York's effort to switch from a sort of more centrist democratic state to a more progressive one. And a lot of those folks are involved in the campaign and, and building it out with me.
0: So talk about the incumbent and your concerns about his record.
1: say this, his record can be summarized in one overarching uh, problem, which is that When it comes to criminalizing poor communities of color, their office is very good at it. Uh, He sends more people to jail and prison than any other district attorney in the state. Um, The office has um, one of the least imaginative approaches to alternatives to incarceration of any DA in the city. And he does that despite having enormous resources at his disposal that could be invested in alternatives to incarceration. And in contrast, when it comes to rich and powerful folks, Uh, people like the Trumps and Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein. And more recently, in this absolutely galling case uh, around Dr. Robert Haddon, Uh, he seems to look the other way when injustice is perpetuated by somebody who has privilege and means. So just to give you an example of something that's almost breaking news, and it broke basically over Thursday and Friday, Um, Dr. Robert Haddon um, has been accused of sexually assaulting dozens, maybe at least 40 or 50, uh, women as an OBGYN, um, totally taking advantage of his relationship to them as a doctor and doing really awful things and sexually abusing women over the course of many years. And what has come out is that not only was he shielded by Columbia University, the powerful institution that he is affiliated with, but that the DA's office knew about at least 20 cases that were against him and ended up, uh, letting him plead to a misdemeanor that had no jail time, no fine, no probation, no public apology, no admission of guilt except for one very minor misdemeanor, and betrayed dozens of women in the process. And the thesis for why that happened and why all these other high-profile people were let off the hook is that the DA's office is too close to power. It is too close to the sort of one percenter lawyer class that represents these individuals. It is sometimes close to the individuals themselves. And there's really no other explanation for how an office that's so good at you know, churning out uh, jail and prison sentences for some people um, all of a sudden gets weak-kneed when dealing with people who have influence.
0: So you've talked about being a leading organizer for the New York City uh, decarceration movement. What exactly does that mean? What does decarceration look like in uh, respect to Manhattan?
1: Sure. So New York has had its jail population um, go down um, considerably over the last years due to the work of um, advocates and community groups, both in changing policy, but also remembering that uh, what stops the cycle of harm from happening is investing in people, investing in communities. And I think what's often overlooked in the criminal justice conversation is, uh, yes, we have fewer people in jail and fewer people in prison than we did three, five, ten years ago. And part of that is because we've done things like past bail reform, which I know California has done as well. Uh, New York was just a few months behind. But it's not just those criminal statutes. It's also the fact that there are now many more groups working when people come home from prison to try to help them find housing and jobs and organizations that are trying to provide people treatment so that they don't go into dark cycles and you know end up doing something illegal. So we're, we're, there are a lot of groups uh, working with young people, there are folks doing violence interruption work that are trying to reduce the amount of violence in our, in our most dangerous neighborhoods without using police. Uh, so all of these things are contributing to a city where most of the people in the political and social justice and nonprofit uh, environment are committed to a world in which jails and prisons are used less. Um now, the district attorney has an enormous role to play in that ecosystem and has more discretion to affect people's lives in that system than any other um, political actor. And so what I've found is that uh, of the people who are committed to this vision, uh, that list does not include sidebands. He has not been at the table trying to sort of share this vision of a different kind of New York, and that's why it's so important to uh, replace him. And he's not the only problematic VA in in the five boroughs, but... When you look at what Manhattan is, Manhattan has been, for many decades, a progressive beacon, uh, not only within New York City, but in many cases throughout the country. We have had so many great thinkers and political leaders and um, lawyers come from Manhattan. So it would be disappointing for Manhattan to be behind the curve in terms of creating a progressive criminal justice system.
0: Um, and, and then... You have a number of other challengers in the race. What kind of separates you from those other challengers, especially on this issue?
1: Sure. Uh, Yeah. At the moment, I mean, it's a a large and growing field. There's probably four or five candidates now. And that number is rumored to increase to six or seven or eight. I mean, who knows? It could be very interesting because it is a plurality election. And so, uh, I'm actually happy. The the, the larger the field, the better, in my view. Uh, From my initial wave of contacting um, residents and voters, it's been so long since there was a competitive Manhattan district attorney race that most most people don't even know what to make of the fact that somebody's at their door talking about these issues. Um, So to me, the more the merrier, because if you have six, seven, or eight candidates in the race talking about the criminal justice system, talking about the district attorney's office, that's good for New Yorkers. It's good for Manhattan residents better understand the system that they're either explicitly part of or or implicitly part of. And uh, as far as how I distinguish myself from the other candidates, I don't think there's really a question that I'm the most progressive candidate. Um, i put out a number of bold calls that haven't been met by the other candidates. Uh, For example, I've uh, pledged to cut our jail pretrial population by 80% during my first term in office. I've proposed capping sentences at 20 years for all but Those exceptional circumstances put us in line with how sentencing law is practiced in Europe and other uh, industrial countries. Uh, And then with this drug policy uh, that I put out the other day, and this is a little in the weeds for people who are not from New York, but in New York, we have an office called the Office of Special Narcotics Prosecutor, uh, which basically conducts the drug war independent of oversight from even the district attorney's offices. And this was created in the 70s as a sort of uh, whiplash response to what was happening then. And, uh, I'm calling for the abolition of that office and saying that it should be you know, deprived of resources and then eliminated via the state legislature. And as Manhattan's, Yale I'll actually have some discretion in making that happen.
0: So you mentioned that, you know, you kind of grew up in the nineties, uh, and I was in DC in the nineties and I distinctly remember Giuliani time and, uh, he, he was almost a revered figure for being tough on crime. And it's interesting to see how far the pendulum has, has swung back the other way. But what does uh, the criminal justice system now look like in New York?
1: So what's fascinating is that even preceding Giuliani, if you look at the second half of Mayor Dinkins' term in the early 90s, uh, I mean, New York was in a, in a bad place at that time. Um, But we have now had both crime and our levels of incarceration go down together uh, for 27 years in a row. And I might be off by one year in one direction or the other. But essentially, since the early 90s, every single year, whether it was Mayor Giuliani or Dinkins or Bloomberg or de Blasio, all of whom had strengths and weaknesses, um, the the crime rate has gone down and the incarceration rate has gone down. Um, So first of all, this sort of disabused us of the notion that, the crime rate is going down because we're locking people up. Um, in fact, both numbers are going down together. And I think it really comes down to community investment. And different political leaders have invested in New York in different ways. Um, and I think the dividends of that is there's there's simply far less crime in New York than there used to be, which means we really need to be open to more creative solutions. You know, what I found in this campaign is that in some ways the biggest uh, dividing line is is not between race, although I think people of color feel more strongly about reform than, than white people, uh, is not around um, gender. It's 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 really around uh, age. So for older New Yorkers who remember the 70s and 80s and, and early 90s, there is a concern that you know if we push criminal justice reforms too far, you know the battle days will come back. And for those of us, you know, and, and I'm not saying young people, I'm saying people into their 40s and everything. Um, who have grown up in a different kind of city, um, we're a bit embarrassed by the state deplorable state of our jails. We're embarrassed by police violence and misconduct. We don't think it's smart to flood the subways with police officers um, to deal with people, who, homeless people who are experiencing mental health issues. We think there's a smarter, better way that we can be conducting ourselves as a city and that we have the resources to do it as uh, the richest city in the country. Uh, so uh, that's sort of the philosophy that underlies this race is that jail and prison should be used as a last resort. We have other ways to get people's lives back on track and stop the cycle of harms from happening.
0: So what does the bail reform look like in New York and how is that working so far?
1: Bail reform was an effort of many years that finally passed um, last year in large measure because, well, in addition to the work of advocates, in large measure because the Democrats uh, successfully took the state Senate for the first time in many years. Um, Democrats already controlled the assembly and have a moderate Democratic governor, Andrew Cuomo. And so bail reform passed last year and it was not quite what advocates were asking for, but it was pretty good. I remember it was one of those victories that, you know, you'll take home with you. And what the new bail reform law calls for is uh, ROR for um Release on recognizance for individuals who are accused of misdemeanors, most nonviolent, and, and most nonviolent felonies. Uh, and then bills still can be set for violent felony charges and some nonviolent felonies. Um, and the way it has worked so far is rather predictably um, reactionary forces, which include locally for us, uh, the Republican Party, the New York Post, um, district attorneys, the police unions. These are people who opposed every criminal justice reform of the last decade, and having actually lost this battle, which is unusual for them, they've been trying to undermine the bail law since since its inception. And to give you an example of this, uh, the bail law was set to take effect January 1st, 2020. Uh, In late December, there was a rise in um, anti-Semitic attacks, which were either very, I mean, this is a city with a lot of Jewish residents. Everybody was very upset about this. Um, There were several... Assaults and graffiti and things like that that are anti-Semitic in nature, and the New York Post, with support from the police department, and supporting quotes, uh, argued that this was happening because of the bail law, which had not even taken effect yet. Um, so it just goes to show that there was a very dishonest and pernicious effort by reactionary folks to uh, undermine the bail law from the uh, from the get go. And since then, that has been unrelenting. Every time there is somebody who's out on um, out without bail who commits a new crime. Uh, the New York Post is all over it, trying to fearmonger and scare New Yorkers and changing the bail law back. What they don't say in those articles is that there are hundreds and maybe at this point thousands of New Yorkers who are at home with their families, able to fight their cases from home with their lawyer, with their family, uh, rather than being stuck at Rikers Island pending the outcome of their case. And so I would say from that perspective, bail reform has been a win already.
0: Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because I had this conversation with Chesa Bodine, who uh, is now the DA in San Francisco, and one of his big concerns is what happens the first time that you let somebody out and uh, they commit a horrible crime? And he said, look, it's going to happen statistically. Uh, There's no way to avoid it. But, you know, the other side of the coin is all of the people that uh, instead of being stuck in custody, End up uh, with their uh, families and they keep their jobs and they keep their places to live. So it's an interesting uh, dynamic here.
1: And Chase is completely right on that. And uh, this, even more so in, in New York City, you know, we're a city of uh, 8.6 million people. The size of the city actually swells to about 11 million during the day, with everybody who comes into work from around uh, the neighboring areas. And so pretty easy to cherry pick as a tabloid, say, oh, my God, you see this horrific thing that happened on the subway yesterday. But we can't govern through anecdotes and fear, right? I, in fact, you know, one of the uh, the pushes recently has been a spate of articles about how unsafe the subways are, which, if you read the articles, certainly make it sound like some kind of hellscape. But then the data came out, and it revealed that um, by most categories, subway crime was down. By others, it was flat. And there was really no change. And so I think we really have to be vigilant about as leaders, right? And so as a candidate for Manhattan District Attorney now, I feel a responsibility uh, to show leadership and to make sure that if there are things that there are public safety concerns that the people of New York should be aware of, I should let them know that. But it's irresponsible to make people scared of things that aren't problematic. And when, when crime is going down, people should know that.
0: Now, one thing... Where I think New York is ahead of California on is on the Prosecutorial Misconduct Commission. I've gotten a chance to work with some of those folks because they're trying to bring the idea out to California. How is that working so far?
1: Well, I, I haven't seen um, its uh, its results um, take effect very much um, here in the city. I don't know if it's been you know, more effective in, in jurisdictions outside the five boroughs. Um, I, I think that a lot of the most interesting work that's happening in terms of prosecutorial accountability actually now is being driven by a broader conversation around policing and how police and DA's office intersect. And so we've had uh, George Joseph, who's an extremely talented investigative reporter here um, doing groundbreaking work on the relationship between DA's offices and police that they put on the stand who have known, track records of um, lying on the stand or lying about other facets of the cases, evidence, what have you. Um, And so that's been, I think, the most interesting thing about prosecutorial accountability is, you know, how are we going to hold these police officers accountable? How are we going to be able to trust district attorney's offices if they're sending problematic police officers back on the stand after they know that those people can't be trusted?
0: Yeah, and you anticipated one of my questions. What would you do as a as a DA uh, to increase that police accountability?
1: Well, you know, I know from, uh, I, I mentioned during my quick bio that um, many jobs ago, I was uh, a counsel at the uh, Police Oversight Board, which is called the CCRB here in New York. And it was a very enlightening experience because, you know, even though the agency is uh, ostensibly to hold police officers accountable for misconduct, the reality is that uh, the agency is is empowered to dish out light slaps on the wrist at best, um, and it tries its hardest to do it. There are good people there, um, but the uh, structure of the system and the political power of the NYPD—it's um, really you know the the most uh, effective political force in New York in a sense. You know, we hear a lot in New York about the real estate lobby, and and sure they they, they donate a lot of money to candidates, but if you're talking about an entity that can stop policy. In, Tracks and reverse it. It's the NYPD and the police union as a sort of corresponding entity, and um, how to work with such an organization like that. Thirty-five thousand police officers. I think there's a couple things that I would do. Number one, before I even get elected during this campaign, I'm going to be re- raising these policing issues over and over again because uh, the same day that I'm on the ballot, uh, the next mayor of New York City is going to be on the ballot. Um, our current mayor's term limited, and he's got a competitive race to replace him. And to me, you can't Incredibly, be a progressive Democrat running for Mayor of New York City. If you don't have a plan for how you're going to hold police officers accountable, uh, what kind of vision you're going to have for the department, what kind of commissioner you're going to appoint, that's going to happen before I'm even elected. Once I'm elected, I'm going to be very clear that we are not going to rely on police officers who have a history of lying on the stand. And if I ever find out that somebody lies on the stand during a case for us, um, we're going to prosecute that police officer for perjury. And this is very serious because if a police officer lies on the stand and somebody gets put in jail or prison as a result, it is not only a horrific outcome for that one person, but it completely undermines the integrity of the DA's office. And a large part of how we get to a safer New York without relying on jails and prisons is by building community trust and community partnerships. And it just, you know, a situation like that just destroys community trust.
0: And I take it that the, uh, the police officers association will not be supporting your candidacy.
1: Yes, we can. We can bank on that one. <laughs>
0: um, so, what other issues are you running on?
1: So that I'm glad you asked. There's um, because certainly you know criminal justice reform and issues affecting our sort of day to day street crime and things like that are a huge part of the office. But they're they're certainly not the only things that I care about or the only reasons I'm in this race. So there's at least three affirmative things we would like to do as an office. Um, right out of the gate number one uh, is really leaning into the issue of wage theft you know both both i believe in san francisco and uh, new york city uh, basically in all major cities uh, there's evidence that more money is stolen via wage theft by employers than all other forms of larceny robbery and thefts combined and so this is a real problem and you know you can bet if uh, you know 19 out of 20 people being mugs weren't having anything done about it there would be some outcry and that's basically what's happening in the wage theft context and so We've been uh, in communication with a lot of people who work in the economic justice space about how the district attorney's office could more effectively deter uh, bad actors from engaging in wage theft in the first place, and then uh, targeting, you know, people who are, are particularly notorious about it. Uh, so that's one. Number two, um, we would create a, a unit for political corruption. I mean, there's theoretically one that deals with it now, but it's been moribund for years, and New York is becoming a one-party town, which politically I favor as a lifelong progressive Democrat, but we know that when one party controls all the levers, um, that makes corruption actually thrive because people with resources and and influence know where to go to get things done. And so we've had a number of of corruption scandals in the last few years in New York that kind of fizzled out, uh, and that's in part because the Handys office has not shown any appetite for those kinds of cases. And then third, um, one of the, uh, several of the most horrific um, cases from Sy Vance's tenure uh, have involved sexual assault. And what's come out is that uh, women find it very challenging, very trying to report sexual assault to either the police um, or the DA's office. Now, the police is not shocking to me. I think, you know, there's an almost universal dread of having to go into police departments to file um, with the way people are treated. But I was actually quite disappointed to learn that the Manhattan DA's office um, is is openly hostile uh, to women who come forward with sexual assault cases, and that's been manifested very brought obviously in the Dr. Haddon case, but even for smaller things, you know, like a, a one-off case. Um, I've heard stories of, of women feeling like they weren't taken seriously, or um, they were sort of jostled around the department from lawyer to lawyer, and it's just a combination of bad practice and, and lack of care. So. That's another thing that we would change right from the get-go.
0: And then, um, are you looking to implement more in the way of restorative justice practices?
1: Absolutely. Um, I'm a big supporter of restorative justice programs. Um, There aren't any in Manhattan right now. There are some in Brooklyn and the Bronx. Um, So I would be very open to uh, creating a robust restorative justice program, including one that could deal with more uh, serious and problematic crimes. um, I think that's where where it can really be effective in changing the game, you know, very often in the country. um, And by the way, this is not true of the Brooklyn program, which I think is quite strong, but looking around the rest of the country, I do see a lot of restorative justice programs that are for misdemeanors and things that honestly, like, do they really need to go through this laborious process? Aren't there simpler ways to resolve it? But when it comes to more challenging... Crimes and incidents and relationships between people, I think restorative justice can be really powerful and it would definitely support bringing it um, to our office.
0: And then, you know, I, I've been following the case of Central Park Five for it seems like uh, 30 years, uh, which I think is accurate. Um, uh and and it's interesting because it keeps coming back in 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 some way shape or form uh because you know the original attack and 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 the publicity and 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 kind of early trump's uh, craziness with uh the ad and then uh it turns out you know that they got the wrong people so they get exonerated and and now, with all the focus on wrongful convictions, that case uh, is kind of a poster child. And so it, it came back into the media limelight last year. Um, so I'd be interested in your take on that, but also kind of the larger issue of wrongful convictions and what your office hopes to do about them.
1: So first of all, the, you know, the, the reason the Central Park Five case has still um, the social consciousness uh, over the last few years is because uh, several of the the men who were involved of the Exonerated Five have been very um, active in in not only sharing their own stories, but also lifting up other people who have been dealing with wrongful convictions and making sure that this stays in the public consciousness. Um, It is sort of a textbook case about everything that can go wrong and the impact it can have on people's lives. Um, As far as what I would do as Manhattan DA, Uh, The DA's office does have a wrongful conviction unit, as increasingly most um, urban sophisticated offices do, but from my understanding of the operation of of that particular department, it is not sufficiently independent in that there are a lot, it is mainly comprised of prosecutors from the regular Manhattan DA's office who um, may or may not have the most objective view on whether our case was conducted properly or you know the outcome was fair or just. And so uh, I would work to improve that office and bring it up to the best practices standards so that the um, people in that office can feel like they're safe and insulated from other political and concerns from around the office. and I think that will lead to more people uh, having their cases rigorously reviewed and hopefully uh, more people return home who shouldn't have been locked up in the first place.
0: Now, one thing I'm kind of curious about, because New York's an unusual city um, and your DA's office is unusual in the fact that most cities, you know, you have one DA's office kind of controlling it. And and often, you know, a a city is just uh, one part of the DA's office. There's a a broader county in New York. um, The division is, is is much narrower than than the division of the city. And so how do the DA's offices interact? Because in a lot of cases, you think that crime is going to kind of bleed over borders, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I think working with other offices is essential. And, you know, in all the work I've done in New York, it, it is a city of eight and a half million people. It's a very hard city to get anything done by yourself, no matter what you're trying to do, uh, no matter whether you're advocating for something or something, doing something as an agency or as an elected official. Uh, so uh, certainly, um, coordination with the other DA's offices would be essential to doing the job well, and uh, I have no doubt that I would be able to do that. I think it's also just as you know, you that crime can sort of move between uh, boroughs. Um, uh, our criminal justice movement here is robust, and it's it's borough wide. You know, there there are efforts happening every day to make sure that we're reforming the systems in Brooklyn and we're reforming the systems in Queens. Um, we're, we're a little bit slower, but working on reforming the systems in the Bronx and trying to bring some cohesiveness and unity to the way people practice in those places. Um, so that, that's a job of both the district attorneys and, um, community members who are trying to create a fair criminal justice system. So I've been part of that five borough effort, um, on the other side of the table as well.
0: And then- in kind of the broader picture, how do you kind of situate yourself within the broader criminal justice reform movement?
1: Well, I'm I'm very much uh, from it, sort of uh, come up through it, and uh, I would not be running for Manhattan DA if I did not um, feel the encouragement and support of people in the criminal justice movement who I've worked with in so many capacities as a lawyer, as an advocate, as an organizer, as a campaign director. Um, there are a lot of people doing incredible work, um, do, doing impact litigation, direct services, um, you know, trying to change laws, uh, who are working together in New York and across the country to end our addiction to mass incarceration. And frankly, I think a lot of us are pretty disappointed at the outcome so far. Right? We've now been at this, and by at this, I mean a, a reasonably well-funded, well-organized criminal justice movement for. Well, I don't know. I, I wonder what your thoughts would be. But, you know, 10 years, 8 years, 12 years, you know, something in that ballpark. And uh, we don't have a tremendous amount of success to show for it in the way of reducing the number of people in jail and prison in the United States. It, it's come down a little bit from its peak, but given the amount of public attention and the amount of effort and time and money, <laughs> uh, I think we, we need to do better. And so when I thought about whether to run for this or not, uh, the number one guiding force for me was, can I make a bigger difference as Manhattan DA than I can, for example, running the criminal justice campaign program for the ACLU? And if the choice was between, you know, should I run for city council and affect the conditions of our streets or uh, stay at the ACLU, it wouldn't even be a question. You know, uh, obviously you can do a lot working on criminal justice issues from the ACLU, but when it comes to affecting people's lives on a daily basis, there's just nothing like the district attorney's office, be it in Manhattan or any other jurisdiction, for changing the way that the criminal justice system treats people from the moment they enter it, what they're charged with, whether or not they're charged at all, what kind of sentences to seek, um, what kind of alternatives to deem acceptable and to promote. And um, for me, uh, I, as somebody who has been in the political space, as well as the legal and criminal justice space, I simply could not allow a position of this significance to not be held by somebody who shares our values. And yeah, that's why I part ways with some people who, uh, you know, feel the same way that I do about the criminal justice system, but couldn't imagine being a prosecutor. And I get that. Um, but the reality is it's a powerful position and either it's going to be filled by somebody who shares our values or it's going to be filled by someone who doesn't. And we're going to have to spend a ton of energy pushing and prodding for them to do the right thing every once in a while. So when I win this office, we'll be able to do the right thing every day.
0: Yeah, And I think you raise um several very important points in there um you know i would i would say the criminal justice movement seems to be about eight to ten years old um right about the time i actually started uh covering uh courtrooms um there were really no court watches at that time and now there are court watches all across the country last summer uh, we had rachel barco who of course is from your neck of the woods at nyu mm-hmm. And, and one of the points that she made uh, that really resonated with me is that we've kind of covered the low-hanging fruit of criminal justice reform, but to get to the real nitty-gritty of reduction of incarceration and the amount of people in prison, we have to go after those violent crimes rather than the, the nons, you know, nonviolent, non-serious, uh, non-sexual. Um, so your thought on that?
1: Well, I, I, I mostly agree with that, and, and Rachel's really smart, and I certainly follow her work. Um, she's completely right that <clears throat> in some jurisdictions, we have done a lot with the non-non-nons, right? In, um, in Manhattan and in Brooklyn places like that, it is true that it's possible but unlikely that you will be stuck at Rikers Island for just because you have a bag of marijuana in your pocket, right? There's maybe some other, something else to the case there, right? So we have made progress on those types of issues. I guess where I would sort of part ways on what this all means is, you know, I, I, first of all, I don't think we've gotten rid of the non non nons everywhere in the country. You know, as you know, working at the ACLU, we work in a lot of states where, man, they're very punitive over, you know, minor minor issues, and their jail and prison rates are going up, not down, uh, like they are in New York and California. So, I, I would hesitate to declare victory over the low hanging fruit. Nationally, I think we've sort of achieved a lot regarding low-hanging fruit in blue cities, mostly on the coast, um, and to, to a lesser extent in, in the Midwest. Um, so with that caveat on smaller offenses, I also am a little bit reluctant to create this dividing line between nonviolent small offenses and violent larger offenses, because I think what, it, what the issue is that people get stuck into these cycles of harm. And it usually does not start with a, you know, terrible, violent crime. I mean, it's possible, but usually somebody's life slowly comes apart. um, Somebody who does not have the support they need from a young age, and things begin to crater. You know, economic desperation leads to crimes of poverty. uh, That may lead to a lifestyle that includes carrying a gun um, and doing harm to others. And next thing you know, you have someone, quote, charged with a violent crime, but it's like, why couldn't we have intervened in that person's life in a different way, in a more productive, safer, healthier way earlier? Uh, so it didn't escalate to that point. And I think that's, so I, I don't know if it means, I think maybe where my difference is, is that I don't believe there's there's these separate groups of people and we have to get to dealing with the other group of people. I think we just have to deal with everybody more smartly right out of the gate and hope that people don't let that cycle of harm continue into their lives.
0: Very good. Um, So closing thoughts, um, what take-home message do you want to leave with people listening to this?
1: For anybody who feels that the criminal justice system needs really broad transformation, uh, what we're going to do is run a campaign to really sell Manhattan voters on the idea that we can dramatically reduce our use of jail and prison uh, while keeping our communities safe. And, that, and I would argue safer and healthier in the long run. Uh, that is uh, a, a campaign pledge that uh, not a lot of folks have made before. I, I do think Chase's campaign in San Francisco is probably a, a close analog, um, respecting that there are differences between Manhattan and San Francisco. Um, and so I think this is really exciting. It's really exciting to put these ideas before people who haven't thought a lot about criminal justice before. Um, including you know, affluent folks who are not directly exposed to the system. And then for communities that have been impacted by the system, this is really about giving them hope that they can be part of changing a system that has been oppressive to them for so long. So uh, I encourage anybody who's excited about what they've heard to look at janos That's J-A-N-O-S-F-O-R-D-A.com. And just learn what we're about and, and uh, join our campaign.
0: Great. Thank you so much for being on our show.
1: Thank you. It was great. I appreciate all the questions and hope you're well.
0: That was Janos Marton, who is running for DA in Manhattan, New York, as a progressive reformer, one of many progressive DA candidates that have sprung up across the nation, and we've had a bunch on our show. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Thanks so much, and join us again next time.